Good evening and welcome to another episode of Inspired. I'm Sarah Loudon from Total Health Conferencing and tonight I have the honor to be interviewing a Dr. Kasha Patel who has written a book that's really touched my heart in so many ways. Uh, actually, as my team was getting ready to prepare for this podcast, we got an advanced copy of the book and we got to go through it. And just if I could show you, not just notes for the interview, but notes for friends, notes for people I work with. It really was a book that shaped this part of my life and I can't wait to share more of it and its authors with all of you. The book is called Between Life and Death From Despair to Hope, again by Dr. Kasha Patel, who is a practicing oncologist working directly with cancer patients for the last 20 years. CEO of Carolina Blood and Cancer Care Associates, a certified trainer for physicians with the Education in Palliative and End-of-Life Care Program. He's been a speaker at several CME events, also Vice President of the Community Oncology Alliance, which many of you will know as COA, Medical Director at the International Oncology Network, and Chairman of Clinical Affairs at the Association of community cancer centers. Again, many of you would know as ACCC. Uh, and really just a magnificent person. And now I can say confidently adding magnificent author to his bio. Dr. Patel, thank you so much for being with us tonight. Of course, I'm honored to be joining your team for an interview today, Sarah. And I'm so impressed that, you know, you are one of the few agencies that kind of step out of the norms at the time where you're showing that your commitment is true to the society, not just to the business. So you are actually practicing the profession and not just the business part of the profession. Oh, thank you so much. That means a lot to us. You know, as you know, all of us in cancer care, when COVID-19 kind of came upon us, so many questions. How will we serve? How will we continue to be of impact? How will we reach patients? Uh, and so we've done everything we can to be innovative. I know uh, and have seen that you and the practice have as well. Um, and it's just one of those times in life, I think, where you're measured by, you know, what you do, not necessarily who you are. So I appreciate the, uh, the comments. Uh, Dr. Patel, I want to talk with you about how you even got to the point where you said, I want to sit down and write this book. You know, Sarah, I'm a true nomad of this world. And when you talk about the faith and religion, you know, I grew up in India, went to Catholic school, so I had enough knowledge about the Christianity and faith in a Christ. My first girlfriend was Muslim, married a Hindu girlfriend, and now we're actually here in the US. But I lived in about three continents, 11 different cities, and I felt that throughout the course, I learned how to cure disease, but I never learned how to accept the disease if we cannot treat that. And I was always struggling about the fact that a third of the patients in my life that as I was ever involved in treating them, I knew that I wouldn't see them beyond a year or two or five. But I was not equipped with the tool of how do I comfortably share with them the news that I had to. I was not prepared to share how to break the news that, you know, the medicines are not working and your end is near. Mm -hmm. And 
in course of learning, I, I realized that there was a nice training course at the Northwestern uh, University in Chicago called EPAC. So I went and got trained there and I became a trainer for the end of life care. And I realized that I can make a huge impact in my patient's life if I could learn how to communicate about the process of death and dying and how do I communicate with them. So I started this journey, but I felt that it was not one man's show. I had to become a trainer for the other physicians as well. So first I started doing retreats. I, I, I did about three or four different retreats at Myrtle Beach or in Charleston, but I would get together with uh, 20, 30 doctors and nurse practitioners at the mid-levels. And I was actually accompanied by my dear friend, Jeff Brantley, who's the chairman of the integrative medicine at Duke University. So two of us would get together, design a curriculum for two days. We begin by, you know, understanding mindfulness-based stress reduction, and we'll talk about it at some other time. That's my second passion. And then we, I would actually tell them, how do you break the news? And then I felt, oh my God, there are so many people who lack how to talk about this. So I thought, let me start writing a book. And a perfect character came into my life. The main character, I'll leave it to you to kind of, you know, ask that question. I don't want to break the secret here. But a character came into my life who literally opened up horizon for me to start writing process. So that was the beginning of kind of learning for me. And I, I'm learning. I still would say that I'm not expert at it. As I communicate about end of life care, I learn myself and, and my learning has to go much more beyond what I am today. You know, as you were talking, I was thinking about so many of the building blocks that made up who you are and how you pursue information. I am the daughter of a uh, my mom is from is is of Indian descent. Uh, she grew up a Hindu. She became a Christian later in life. My father studied to be a Catholic priest. He was a, an Irishman. He studied to be a Catholic priest until he had a terrible motorcycle accident. And while he was in hospital, my mother was his nurse in training. Ah. Uh, and he fell madly in love with her. If you know her, you'll know why. She's beautiful on the inside and out. And I was raised in New York. They moved from England to New York. I was raised in New York and we went to Catholic school young. Um, and then I spent time in the Caribbean. I spent time in Pakistan. I spent time all over the world in South Africa. And in your story of kind of growing up in India, going to Catholic school, dating the Christian, dating the Hindu, dating the Muslim, there is so much about spirituality that I think builds who we become and ex being exposed young to these variations in thought processes and spiritual beliefs almost cause us to carve our own journey to enlightenment to think you know asking the questions why do they believe that and i believe this and what's the meat in the middle and at, the whole time i was reading between life and death I couldn't help but stop to appreciate how gracefully you embraced different faith backgrounds, including the main character's background of being agnostic. 
And I wonder if you could just take a couple of minutes to talk with us about your own spiritual journey and how that shapes who you are as a doctor and who you are as an author. So thank you. That's a very interesting segue. I'm already starting seeing a connection between the two and we'll talk offline between two of us as to, you know, how both of us, I used to live in England as well. So interestingly, four years in Manchester area, six months in Scotland. So there are a lot of commonality between us. So going back to your question, I grew up under the shadow of my dad. My dad was a true spiritual person. Even though he was a devout practicing Hindu, he did not believe in going to temples and shrines and sending me to Catholic school under the kind of disciplinary, you know, modes of the Jesuits was tough. But he said, no, I want you to grow to be the world citizen. He said, you are a nice kid. You are a smart kid. I think I want you to be the true citizen of the world and not just somebody who grows up in, in kind of restricted faith base. And, and, you know, when my first friend, uh, Ruab, I think she's probably listening to somebody in Australia, I'm in touch with her. She was a Muslim and, and she would ride me on my motorbike. She would come to my house. My mom would get a little bit worried. She said, oh, Kasha, you have a Muslim friend. And I said, don't worry. My dad said, oh, that's a nice person. Let's kind of, you know, have them come and, and work together. So, so I started understanding that there's so much commonality between all of us. And when you brought up at the beginning about your belief in doing right thing for right reasons, serving humanity. So all these years having lived in three continents, 11 cities and practicing in Southern Baptist Belt, all I can say is I see the, the divinity in every human being. So when my patients ask me, what church do I go to? I said, my church is this holy practice. You come as a God incarnate to me. Every day God checks on me 30 times. He checks on me to see if I stood up to the cause that I was created. And I said, I worship you because if Christ said that if kingdom of the heaven is in your heart and if I'm the creation of God, so are you. I fully believe that you're sent here to check on me and see if I can set up my faith. So I've become a worshiper of humanity. I don't go to Hindu temple. I'm a spiritual person. I've read all the scriptures and, you know, a lot of influences based on Bhagavad Gita, but I've read Bible. I've read Quran. I've read everything, Old Testament. And I, I still am reading the Kabbalah as well, the Jewish, you know, mysticism. So I, I do believe that there's a commonality between all of us. And that is, you know, respect every human being as a creation of God. And if I do that, my cause as a human being will be fulfilled in this lifetime. Yes, it's so beautiful. It comes through, it comes through in your writing and it comes through in your writing about your relationships. So it's always wonderful to see that authentic expression of faithfulness. And I, I, there were so many moments that I stopped and said to myself, it, just the way you wrote about the interaction and the respect you had of different people's beliefs carrying them through all the way to the end made for such a such a sanctuary and i think that that's what also connects you with patients uh as you as you continue in in your decades and decades of practice oh there's so much we can go on about okay so let me get to the interview so questions. let me let me add one more thing because you, sure. you brought something very important so i've made a habit for last 10 years that every night you know judgmentally so every night I, I i spend 10 minutes of doing 
non-judgmental kind witnessing. I'm a human being and I've actually been through multiple learning process. I'm not a perfect human being. What I do is I take book of the account for the day and if I offended someone unknowingly or knowingly, I ask for the mental forgiveness that clears my brain and the neurons of any holding of the harshness that brings prejudices. And if somebody I felt insulted me, if somebody was rough to me, I give them forgiveness right away because if I did not wake up next morning, I do not want to hold or do any grudges when I go back to wherever my destiny is going to take me after my death. So that's a routine that has helped me a lot. So I do breath awareness meditation when I fall asleep, but I take 10 minutes to clear my mind, soul, heart, and brain of any grudge I built up against anyone. It's so beautiful. And that practice, I think, you know, when we listen to the national narrative, probably even the global narrative at this point, you know, there, if we could just have a little more of that, of people looking inside themselves, of people being forgiving, of people asking for forgiveness, I think you'd see this kind of like uh, exponential return of joyfulness and gratefulness, happiness. Uh, and so it's such a beautiful gift you've just given us to say, you know, the 10 minutes of your day, it doesn't even matter if it's the end of your day, you could start with it. I mean, time is just, you know, this construct of we're going through these cycles, but just to be able to stop where you are and, you know, give that give the gift of forgiveness to others and ask for it. If you have offended, it's such a beautiful uh, gift you've given us. Um, okay. So you sat down, after you've, the, the main character of this book, his name is Harry. You, I started off with the book feeling disconnected from Harry. He, he didn't, he wasn't like me. He was almost, you know, I'm a very emotional person. And he was this very, he's a pilot. He's almost this very structured person, very rational. Um, doesn't necessarily know what he thinks or believes, but he does in other mm -hmm. ways. And he is trying to navigate, and navigate's probably the perfect word because of his, his profession. Pilot. He's trying to navigate what's next, the, the upcoming skies. What is next? How do I get there? What is it going to feel like? What tools do I need to be successful at it? And I love so much that you gave him that space because I know having worked with oncologists for the last over a decade of my own life you don't have a lot of time and the time that you do have you have to spend thinking about the business of oncology thinking about your outside responsibilities thinking about patient care learning trying to build in family time as much as you can. So here comes this guy who says to you, I'd like to be able to meet with you consistently to kind of learn these navigation techniques for what's coming up. And you say, yes. How did you know this, or did you know that this would be something you needed as much as he needed? I'm a lifelong learner, Shara, and I always believe that we are always inspired by a higher purpose in whatever form and shape you believe in that. 
And I felt that when I take my selfish business calculative sense away from talking to patients, whatever happens is always going to be the best. So at the time of talking to Harry, I did not know that this will evolve into something that's going to take me to writing a book and for the global launch. But I believe in theory of karma that if I put my soul, heart, mind, tongue, and action into one kinesis, into one plane, then I know that somebody who's guiding us through that has a plan for it. I'm just executing the blueprint of the plan or the architecture drawing and putting the bricks, mortar, steel, and, and wood to that. And the, the building of the book framed. So my purpose of sharing what I learned could not have been fulfilled if I did not follow my inner instinct of letting Harry learn through spending an hour with him every week. If I was just calculating that I'm not going to make any money because I'm spending a week talking to him under the dome, having a cup of tea, it wouldn't have made any money for me. But I felt that that was the outlet that was necessary for one soul looking for liberation beyond this physical body. Yeah. And it turned out that that devotion allowed me to be talking to you. And I think we may have many more things to do together, looks like, sir. I'm already seeing that connection. <laughs> Well, you know, just you calling it a devotion, it's just so amazing. I love the way you, I love the way things become, move from concept to practice in your mind and in your actions. And, you know, at one of the uh, girls on my team, um, she produces this podcast and she asked this, she posed this question. And I, when I read the question, I thought, what an interesting question. She writes, I'm going to read the question exactly the way she wrote it because I almost feel like this is going to be a learning for me too. It says, in the book, you explain your experience in educating Harry on death, its meaning, and the experiences of other cancer patients who have walked a similar path. How do you explain the role of cancer in life to him? So cancer is not a foreign to me. And one frustration I have, uh, and I take totally different approach from conventional scientists. Remember when President Nixon said, I declare war on cancer. Mm. So cancer is part of my own tissue. No Martian planted that into my body. It's part of my own body. Some cells fail to die. Some cells multiply too much to take over the body. But at the same time, they are not foreign to my body. So my own body tissues are behaving in an unpredictable fashion. So instead of fighting back, instead of looking at as a foreign, how can I learn how to create a symbiosis, help them learn how to live with me? And you know, that is where whole modern treatment for cancer, which is immunotherapy, what is immunotherapy? We are training other groups of cells to learn how to better deal with our own instead of using nuclear bombs like uh, the, the chemotherapy. So I call chemotherapy like a cluster bomb. And remember napalm bombs that people were throwing over in, in, uh, in Vietnam? Instead of that, we are using the smart cluster devices that can just go after the target and, and let the other tissues live peacefully. Mm -hmm. So I look at cancer as a learning experience of peaceful cohabitation. That is what we do in a bone marrow transplant. We create a system 
where the donor T cells will learn how to live in recipient's body and create something called graft versus leukemia effect, where even if leukemia comes back, the graft T cells will learn how to live into symbiosis. So I feel, and this is totally different approach than a lot of my colleagues, is that we cannot get rid of cancer majority of the time. But if you can prolong the peaceful living when you're in a stage four disease and allow as many years in meaningful of quality of life, I think that's the way I personally perceive we can use the tools, whether you look at the targeted therapy, cell, uh, you know, the, the bone marrow transplant or chemotherapy or immunotherapy. Mm. I think it makes so much sense because you're right. It isn't, it isn't something foreign. It's something that, you know, it's part of us and individually as we're diagnosed. And so, you know, as moving on to another character in your book, Julie, um, you mentioned how her, her attitude was so integral to her response and to her existence while having cancer. And I wonder if you marry those two concepts and say, you know, if you look at cancer as something that's part of us and we've got to figure out how to, like you say, you know, target it with our own ability or helping our own ability to target it. Do you also think that in that same way, our attitude about it in our body is part of the healing or growing uh, with and through cancer? That's a very valid point you bring up, Sarah, because if you look into research in the mindfulness and meditation and what we call the non-pharmacological intervention, you know, people call music therapy, art therapy, and BSR, all of these have shown that some of the modalities, particularly mindfulness and meditation, using the neuronal conduits into the epigenetics, do increase telomerase length. In fact, there's a physician in California, I believe, Dr. Apple, Alisa Apple or someone got a Nobel Prize for her work in 2010 by showing that mindfulness by reducing stress can increase telomerase level and telomerase in turn increases telomere length, which is anti-aging mechanism. So on one hand, we are using artificial anti-aging mechanism while we have innate capacity of reducing the overpowering impact of cancer in the body. I'm not ready to say that we can cure cancer by using meditation, but I'm ready to say that mindfulness meditation has enough meat to itself to show that it can meaningfully improve the quality of life and hopefully add to longevity. In fact, I, I want to mention a paper here. So th there was a study done and published in the JCO back in 2008 to 10 frame where two groups of physicians were followed prospectively uh, for several years with an identical state of prostate cancer. One group of physicians exercised 30 minutes every other day and the other group was sedentary. And they found that the physicians who exercise regularly 30 minutes every other day had significantly longer overall survival compared to groups that did not. So there are interventions, which is diet, exercise, stress reduction, mindfulness, that can actually play a role. We just have to try them in a structured perspective, randomized trial. And then 
one of the things I'm planning in the next few months is to start doing those studies of using mindfulness in cancer patient and use the EG measurements as well as functional MRI and the biomarkers to show that along with subjective improvement, we can also have some sort of objective measurable response that can be quantified using the non-pharmacological complementary additive intervention. That's amazing. And it's long overdue. I really do believe it's long overdue because we are living in a society where we put so much um, emphasis on that mind-body uh, relationship. And yet in healing, it seems like the medical community is so quick to run to the medicine and really not think about that mind-body um, connection. In fact, there was a, on page 26 of the book, I read this and I thought how beautiful how you uh, described it. You said, every type of cancer affects the heart, not the heart that pumps blood through our body, but the heart that helps us live a life filled with hope and fulfillment. The heart that gives us a vital link to those we love and to those who love us. And when cancer spreads to that heart, the damage can be just as devastating as anything that begins in our cells. You say, I try never to forget that. In fact, it's the reason we keep those who live with cancer and those who care for them at the center of everything we do. It's why in addition to our relentless search for scientific breakthroughs, we strive to discover new ways of caring. It's how we show that we are dedicated to every human heart that's touched by cancer. So beautiful. It's so, it's so representative of what you're talking about, that, that heart connection, but not, not the physical heart, the spiritual, the soulful heart. Um, and it really does. And I love too that you included the care team, because even though the patients who are dealing with their disease um, have their own unique set of circumstances that they've got to wake up every day and overcome. So does the care team, because every day you're almost uh, communing with energy that's constantly needing, needing, needing. And by the end of the day, it's very difficult. Um, maybe so let, me, a let me add something on that. You know, I, I'm, I'm glad you bring it up because, uh, Sarah, if you look into the modern medicine has taken a reductionist approach. We have reduced human being to a tissue. We take a compartmentalized, fragmented approach. So when you take a cancer piece, you only are focusing on, on that piece, but there's a human being behind it. Yeah. There's a micro ecosystem, there's an ecosystem. If say, I have a 20 billion cells with cancer, but there are about 200 billion cells that are non-cancerous, but we ignore that non-cancerous part of the cells, but we also ignore caregiver because there's a, there's a woman behind it, there's a lover behind it, there's a human being behind it, there's a father, son, mother, wife. And all of these are impacted when you have a cancer. And we forget, the modern medicine forget. I'll make an appointment, you come back tomorrow at 1 p.m. for the chemotherapy. What about the children? What about the husband? What about the father? All these, we completely, you know, we've diminished human being to a commodity and we have to take a reverse approach of bringing the whole ecosystem together so that we become part of their life, not just the targeting the tissue. Yeah, it's yes, well said, well said. Uh, I can totally relate on how your patients 
didn't want to leave you. They didn't want to have anybody else care because thank you. You see them as a person. You see them as a whole person, which is um, which is a little bit unique. Uh, it leads me to my next question. How do you do this without getting so attached to patients that grieving is overwhelming? You know, Sarah, for me, death is not an ending relationship. And then I, I have a second book I'm working on it called The Soul Genome. What I personally feel is that the physical body is a manifest existence of divinity within you. And all of us, whatever fate you have belief in, will go back to that source. But when, when physical body dies, I think the relationship moves on to a different level. So the, the entangled pieces of carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, and phosphorus, which makes my DNA, will float into the system once the body perishes. And, and the, the DNA, the human genome or the divinity within ourselves actually will will be returned back to the earth and maybe my body will become an ant, a bird, a child, something else in different life, maybe a tree as well. So the relationship and existence will not perish. Mm. Only it perish only when we look at the fragmented compartmentalized approach, but otherwise I don't see. So I get, I feel that I'm able to be with them whether they're in body or not. And I can still feel the soul of John. I can still feel soul of Lane, I can still feel soul of Julie all around us because they are not going away. They're part of who we are. Yeah. And you know, before, as we were getting ready to go live, you were mentioning that you and your wife passed the field where Harry trained and where he uh, Yeah. <laughs> Maybe tell us a little bit about that story because I do think that that is the soul connection. It's almost like he is saying to you, I'm still here. So we were actually very interesting, Sarah. You know, last weekend, I have a very dear friend. She's now actually president of the South Carolina Police Society and she practices in Myrtle Beach. We are going down to a place. We're going to spend a night at her house. And on the way to that place, we passed a place called Pageland and I came across this place called Bermuda Soaring Club. So I told my wife, I said, Alpha, do you remember? This is where we came for Harry's funeral and his wife wanted us to sprinkle the ash through the glider. And she said, I remember, is it the same place? I said, yeah. And, and I didn't realize I was going to talk about him today. I had no idea. So Harry is still as much alive in me as he is anywhere else in a space. Yes. And even though he was agnostic, so I could feel, you know, I don't want to steal the thunder for the, for the time when his body left the, his soul left the body, but, but, he was in control throughout the process of living in the body and living beyond the body. Yes. Well, let me take a detour and just kind of talk to you a little bit about you in terms of when did you know or when could you feel that being an oncologist was going to be your passion and mission in life? So I need to bring my dad again, and he was a very calm, very gentle. He grew up as an orphan. He lost both of his parents when he was 10 years old. And in one of the chapters, I write that he had buried so many of his own loved ones that he didn't have tears left when his son died. And, and he had no words left for the eulogy when my brother died at the age of 43 years. 
When I was eight years old, he took me to watch a movie called Anand, which means bliss. And the main actor dies of, they used to call lymphosarcoma of intestine. I still remember the scene and I was inconsolable. I love that actor so much. And I was so sad. So my dad said, you know, you're a good kid. Why don't you become a cancer doctor and cure cancer? And I had no idea what it meant. But the passion stayed in me. And, and as I finished my high school, I was attracted to go to become a space scientist. I was like in one of the top 25 in the country in my uh, what called asset is course. I could have walked into any school and he even gave me check to pay my fees, but I could see tears in his eyes. I said, Papa, what happened? He said, boy, I thought you're going to become a doctor. And I, I tore the check apart. I said, I'll be going to med school now. Mm-hmm. And and the second thing is he always wanted to write. When he was in his high school, he, his principal told him, I can send you to Oxford for a scholarship as to learn how to write to do PhD. My dad said, no, I made a promise to myself to build roads because his mom died as she could not get penicillin because of the rains and there were no roads in 1944. And he said, when I grow up, I want to be an engineer. So he said that even though my heart is in writing, I want to become county chief administrator and build the road so that no other mom dies without getting penicillin. So, so this is in your genes. Kashyap, this is in your genes. You're not just a <laughs> You're a guy who from the beginning uh, Did has... I tell you my, my son wrote a book as well? No, you didn't. Oh, oh you're, it's called Tale of Two Indians. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, how did you him on? So it was about his life and my dad's life. So tale of two Indians. So now three Indians are in in the books. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's, you know, for people who are listening that have never visited India and don't know much about the Indian culture, family is at the center of everything. You know, Mm -hmm. decisions about everything is made in the family home whether it's where you go to school, what you become, who you marry, many times what you're going to eat for the day. It's always made in the family home and it's always made with the family in mind. And I um, can 100% see how the son of a man who gave his life to make sure that roads were built in India so that other women wouldn't suffer the same fate as his mom could be writing a book about helping people learn how to die well when they're um, diagnosed with a terminal disease and feel a sense of loss of control and a little bit of hopelessness. And I think what you bring out in this book about dying well is something that our community and oncology doesn't necessarily look at as an as part of the outcome. So maybe you can talk a little bit about, you know, as a treatment community, the intent is always curative. And even when we add on that the intent could be palliative, that element is pushed to other specialists. So like the oncologist is curative, and then there's palliative care specialists that come in and assist. How do we bridge that so that the oncologist realizes that from diagnosis, the intent is teaching someone to die well? 
It's very important point. Again, you raise up, Sarah. I, I think that that's a system failure because we are programmed. Since we decided to treat cancer as an enemy, we are looking at everything as a win and loss. So when we look at the, you know, if I fail to cure my cancer patient, I'm a failure. That's not true because death is not an option. Death is a natural process of who we are as a human being. Nobody, no living form of existence that we ever know has ever lived forever. I think everything that we see, feel, hear, touch, and sense, they all are going to perish in that form. They'll continue beyond the, the body. I remember uh, 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 Richard Bach's quote from a book called Illusions that the mark of your ignorance is death of your belief in injustice and tragedy. What a caterpillar calls the end of the world, my master calls it a butterfly. So it's just we are metamorphosing in different form. But that awareness that we are not failing when someone dies, that our role as a physician shifts from helping them to have a curative intent is to have them be comfortable and be part of the journey. And also the palliative approach in advanced disease should be starting on the first consultation. In my clinic, we have a role that every patient that walks, we ask them, have they done the advanced care planning? Have they talked to the loved one who's going to make decision? If not, there's a program called the five wishes. I'm sure you know about the five wishes. Kasha, <laughs> I'm not gonna, I'm not even kidding you. My mom just told me, just said to me, Sarah, I want to <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh, I can't believe it. So for anyone listening, the five wishes is uh, something that's put out. Uh, it's kind of a questionnaire in booklet form. I think you can get it on a number of websites. We'll have, we'll add it at the end of this. And it asks these questions. My wish for the person I want to make care decisions for me when I can't, the kind of medical treatment I want or don't want, how comfortable I wanna be, how I want people to treat me and what I want my loved ones to know. My mother just gave this to me and said, I want you to sit down with your husband and fill it out. That she just gave this to me. So again, we have, a, we have a thousand copies at my office and every patient that walks, even if it's young person, I ask them because I said, if I was done over by Matzer, I want someone to know what my desires were. So it almost breaks the ice. It, it helps you bring up the conversation. And I've not seen any patient objecting to bring up the conversation all this time. So we are failing our role as a physician if you're not able to bring up topic of advanced care planning, their wishes. And we've actually have customized five wishes brochure for our clinic. So on the back page, we have our clinic details and we work very closely with that community. So thank you for bringing it up. Thank, no, thank you. It makes me think I really have to fill it out now. Um, let me ask you this question. Do you think that when you, when you have that patient that comes in, like many of the characters in your book, you know, they're going through living life, they have other plans for the day, and they encounter the diagnosis. Do you feel that it's, that that is the most, um, a, not appropriate, but 
they're beginning to think about their mortality anyway. Is it the time where is best to introduce conversations like this that begin now and maybe don't end until years and years later, but at least get them to start thinking about how they want to die well, whether they die from cancer or something else. So when I see a patient with advanced disease where I feel that the cancer is not going to be, at some stage we'll have to bring it up, for that specific patient, I, at the end of first consultation, I insert one sentence saying that doing nothing may be an option we'll have to discuss at some stage. So it brings down the temper that the aim is to extend life with as much quality as we can, but at the same time, ultimate aim is to have a meaningful number of days, weeks, months, or years, but at some stage we'll have to have a conversation about death and dying. In the other cases, every new patient, I bring up the five wishes program and tell them that it's not about if, it's about when and how that will come. So instead of shying away, why can't we prepare for it? And I bring up the you know conversation about before you had a baby born, you go for a baby shower. Before your wedding, we do wedding planning. This is the only thing that's 100% sure that's going to happen. My wedding could be canceled. Baby may or may not arrive, but that's going to happen. So why aren't we talking about that and planning for it now? And it actually, it becomes very easy conversation. People then, then they start looking at living every day to the fullest instead of having the fear of the fear of the death. What I feel we need to uh, help people understand is the fear of the fear of death. If we can erase it, everyone will be able to live to the fullest till the last moment. We have a tools to control symptoms. We have a tools to improve quality of life. What we don't have is when and how it will happen. So why can't we live to the fullest until that moment comes? Why do you think it's so hard for us to um, encounter that? the fear to kind of face that fear what, what do you think holds us back i think it's two things one is we are creating a set of expectation that modern medicine can defy everything so when we see death as a failure again war on a cancer in war either you win or lose so the whole thing in the movement is you know is about winning and defeating something that's part of my own body no we can't defeat that we we all are going to die one day, whether it's not cancer, whether it's heart disease. But when we take the pragmatic approach of, again, taking reductionist kind of stance of we can eliminate cancer and we can be conquered. No, it, it's going to be part of who we are. It's part of our genes. It's mm -hmm. part of genetic mutation. 40% of the population about the age of 50 have mutagenic signals in the, in the genome. So half the society is already beginning in that route. So why don't we figure out where to create symbiosis rather than antagonistic approach? Yeah, well, I love that. Um, I love that you're asking that question and you know your position in so many things, the fact that you're a nationally renowned um, oncologist, that you are part of organizations that reach so many. I think the, the idea and the notion that you're bringing this message using your voice, using your platform, will encourage so many uh, physicians to start thinking this way because 
it's really doing the best for their patient, getting prepared for how to die well. You know, so when you think about COVID-19 and how it's just ravaged our society, I think so much of the fear came from those early stories of people dying alone on ventilators in emergency. Mm -hmm. And that marked us. It almost made us say, if we get this virus, that could be me. I could die alone, scared, no family members. Um, and, you know, I think if you confront that fear of death and instead realize that it's just another stage, a lot of what we put off and even a lot of the way we live, what we eat, what we do with our body physically, you know, how we take care of this one in so many holy books, it's our temple. So, you know, we, it would change, it would change. Do you agree that if we could strike to that fear, we would realize that death is part of life? It's very, you know, I actually walked this talk because on March 17th, when we went for the lockdown across the country, I called all of my partners at the clinic, I called all my employees and I said, you have a choice of not coming because I know that when we walk into this office, there's a good chance that one of us will be that number from COVID-19. And my partner said, what do you plan to do? I said, I plan to come every day. Then my staff said, Dr. Patel, if you come every day, we'll be here. And there was not a single day throughout the pandemic that my facility was closed for cancer patients. And, and I, I feel that it's a fear of the fear of death that defies us from doing what we want to do. And we have a full control. I mean, I think every morning when I wake up, I, I, I make a choice that I will not let anything else hijack my purpose of doing what I want to do today. And if it's death, maybe it's destined to be, I'll, 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 I'm ready to embrace it. I, I don't have any hesitation with that. Hmm. What a way to live. It's such a freeing way to live. I wish many of us could have these tools. And I have to say again to the audience, the book gives you permission to feel all the feelings. It gives you permission. I mean, there were times where like I had to catch my breath. There were times where I had to put the book down because I was getting so emotional. And it's not necessarily that each character has so much development. It's that you could see yourself in every character. You realize that one sentence separated you from them, which is the discovery of a, of a cancer in your body. And you, the reader starts to feel, what would I do? What do I believe? How do I wanna die? And I think that that's one of the most powerful things about the book, that it's not like you're an observer. It's like you're a participant. It's like we're sitting under the dome with you learning what you have learned from all of these experiences and then making our own decisions along the way of what we'd like our life to look and feel like in the end. And I think that's such a blessing to be able to give people. I really, I again have to say thank you for just the way you wrote the book. Um, it, lacks, it lacks a prescriptive nature. It lacks judgment. It lacks so much in terms of telling us instead it just invites us in to feel it with you 
And I, I loved reading this book. I have to keep reiterating. Do you think that you set, like, did you set out to write it that way? No, I mean, so I didn't plan. I, I just wanted my heart to be expressed. And what I've seen, Sarah, is, you know, we human beings have this subtle capacity of identifying genuineness versus the, the fabrication. And because I did not filter my emotions, I, I was completely unfiltered, unhinged, and uncensored when I was writing this book. I wanted my emotions to be expressed as as raw as they were. And in other times that I might have, you know, written about uh, witnessing the charred bodies when I was a year doctor, and I, I, that still stuck with me. I've seen people's bodies stabbed all over in New York at Jamaica Hospital in Queens as an ER doctor. So I did not want any filtration. And human mind will easily grasp the difference between the language of the heart in the language of the brain. And I'm more of a person with language of the heart and less of the language of the brain. It came through. It came through in every story, on every page. It came through in the way you engaged with each one of your patients um, and the way you engaged with us, the reader, no, almost knowing the times where we needed a little bit of um, levity or some hopefulness because it took you on that journey like that up and down up and down it made made every one of these people feel like they were your friend or your family someone you were there with uh and it was just so wonderful i, I want to um be, we've got about 10 more minutes i actually want to end with reading something from the book but between now and then What's the next steps for the book? I know there's a global launch. Talk to us a little bit about uh, what's the next steps for the book. So the global launch is coming up on this Saturday and then a few more interviews scheduled like this. With the COVID-19, I cannot go personally to any of the book signing ceremony. But fortunately, I have a colleagues who are across the country. People like you, what, what I want is I want this book to get a visibility, as many people that can look at this book as it's possible, can write reviews, whatever way you feel about the book. And then I want book on its own merit to go to the next level. My long-term theme though, Sarah, is to create the movement around dying well. I feel that as a society, we have failed humanity for not letting them be in the control till the last moment of their life. And if we can create a movement of dying well, I think at least my life's purpose and maybe my late father's life purpose would be served because he always wanted me to make a difference in people's lives. And this is a way I can do that. Well, don't underestimate how much difference you've made in so many people's lives just by your daily practice uh, in clinic. The fact that you've taken, had the courage to take pen to paper and recount this story with Harry. I'm grateful for Harry and his mark as part of your legacy in calling you closer and closer to sharing your heart and sharing your experiences. Um, for, those who, uh, for those who would like to read the book, again, it's Between Life and Death from Despair to Hope by Dr. Kasha Patel. Um, we have made a commitment here at Total Health that we're gonna give this book 
to every patient advocate that we encounter um, because it is such a reminder of why we do the work we do. Um, and if anyone's interested, we will post how to, how to get a copy of the book, how to reach Dr. Patel, where to leave some reviews that'll be meaningful. Um, Dr. Patel, talk to us a little bit about the Dying Well initiative in terms of what can we do today before the initiative starts? What could we do today as each one of us have people in our lives that are terminally ill, that are facing their own journey with disease? What would be a way that the everyday person could help someone die well? First of all, recognize that we all are going to die one day. So not being fatalistic, but being able to accept it. And I want to bring one, two memories from the book. Uh, and then I, I may need a little more time, but the reason why it's very important. Yes. When a person has accepted that death is a finite end point, they know when they're ready. So one of the characters in the book, Lane or Lena or Nena, uh, she was my friend's mother. So one day I get a call, I was not on call though, and then and John, Lane's son, tells me that, I know you're not on call, but mama, she's in coma and she keeps muttering your name. What do we do here? I was about 50 miles away and we we're supposed to go and attend a wedding, one of those grand Indian weddings, you probably know you've been through many of those. So I told my wife, I said, I'm sorry, I have to go there. So I, I went there and I actually, uh, said, as I entered the room, she was in hospice care, surrounded by her son, her grandson, her daughter and her son-in-law. And I, I went and walked to her, gently took her hand in my hand and then kind of rubbed her arm. And I said, Lena, I'm here. She almost got out of the coma, said, oh boy, I'm glad you came. Now I can leave. And she died in my arms. Yeah. And second event I want to bring up, Harry, about his life. So Harry's biggest concern was that he felt his wife and his daughter could not withstand him leaving the physical body. And he said, I'm struggling with this. I don't know how can I control that. And uh, I saw him at 6 p.m. the night he died. And then his wife called me early next morning saying that Harry passed away. I said, what happened? She said, we don't know. We heard some skirmish outside uh, our bedroom. I opened the door, two of our cats ran out of the room. So we chased our cats. And when we came back, Harry had left the body. So coming back to recognizing and sharing to our loved ones, if they're, if they're facing terminal illness, to give them permission that let's live to the fullest until that moment comes. But when you're ready, Please know that we'll be fine, that we preciously enjoy the time that you had with us. We will miss your physical presence, but we will not miss your soul. We will not miss your eternal awareness that stays with us. So this sort of uh, conversation that we bring up to individuals who are facing terminal illness will be quite helpful in an immediate next step. In the long term, of course, we want to create awareness about accepting death as a part of the natural process of human evolution and that we can delay it. We may be able to plan it to die well. We cannot plan for the date, but we can plan the fashion, the place, the location 
the surrounding and ambience that we can control. Mm. And so those are things we can do to help those who are facing that moment right now. I think that that's um, so important that, you know, you brought out so much of what the anxiety of the one dying is, is about how it will affect the ones that are left behind to live. Uh, and so like you use the word just to give them permission to move on. And, you know, they don't need our permission. They, it, they'll, it'll happen with, with or without our permission. But I think it gives them a sense of completion and almost like it's a goodbye. You know, it's like there's a, there's a moment where you can say, I wrapped, up, I wrapped up my affairs until we meet again. And it's just such a beautiful sentiment um, to, to have for people who are, uh, who are dying of a terminal illness. I think too, you know, when you, we think about the timeliness of this book and this interview of Chadwick Boseman, the Black Panther who died, um, the way he chose to live his last years, giving, um, creating, inspiring, it really makes you think it's a choice. You can live in fear. You can live thinking your days are numbered. All of our days are numbered. But you can live with that awareness, my days are numbered, so why do anything? Or you could live with the awareness, my days are numbered, so the sky's the limit. And I think if you choose the latter, not only do you gift yourself with all things possible, but you gift everyone else with that too. And I think that that as well is a way we can give permission to the ones who are sick and dying around us to live their best. You phrased it so well, Sarah. You actually phrased it so, you almost like you're reading my thoughts here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm telling you, this book marked us. You know, Courtney and I, as we were reading it, we kept texting each other back and forth. There were times we would, you know, she would send me cry emojis. Uh -oh. There were times I just, I literally, I'm reading the book and I just had to almost like throw it down because I was feeling the feelings in the, in the emotions in the book. And it's so well written and I can't, I can't tell every, all the listeners enough, gift yourself this book. It's really something that's going to open up so much in the way you think about death and dying. Uh, Dr. Patel, I want to end with, on page 184 of the book, um, from the Bhagavad Gita, you, you present us with a, an excerpt. And I want to read this as I bid you goodbye for now, um, because it is, I think it sums up death and it sums up this book so well. It says, Never was there a time that I did not exist, nor you or these kings, nor will there be a time where we cease to be. Just as this body goes through the cycles of childhood, youth, and old age, so after death, it passes to another body. Just as you discard old worn out clothes and put on new ones, the self discards old worn out bodies and takes on a new one. These bodies come to an end, but the vast embodied self is eternal, ageless, and fathomless. Death is certain for this body, and rebirth is certain for the deceased. Why do you grieve then? 
The self was never born. It is birthless and primordial. It never dies. Knowing that the self is eternal, indestructible, and unborn, how could it ever perish? The self can't be pierced or singed, moistened, or withered. It is vast, all-pervading, eternal, serene, and timeless. What a beautiful picture of our soul. And again, I still, I felt there was no denomination in it. Whether you're a Hindu and believe you'll live again here physically, whether you're a Muslim and believe you'll live on in another way, uh, or whether you're a Christian and believe that we'll be reborn in this kingdom with perfect bodies after exactly. this. Exactly. It, it carried through. And I want to thank you on behalf of every reader for sharing your heart. I want to give you the gift of telling you that your legacy lives on through your well, work. Thank you. Um, I can't wait to work with you on more things. I can't wait to read the tale of two Indians and you can tell your son that it'll be three Indians and a half that will be in. in yes. Yes. There'll be three and a half Indians. Three and I a half Indians. We, we could work together in writing more. I, I'm looking yes. for some kind of someone that we can work together. You know, end of the day, the body will still perish. Nobody will try again green bills to our body, but if we can leave behind some goodness to this place, like Mahatma Gandhi used to say that we are the trustees and steward of this planet. Yes. Our responsibility is not to use it for ourselves, but make it better for future generations. Then our purpose will be served. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you for sharing your heart. I wish you nothing but all blessings on this book and everything, everyone that it touches. And if there's any way at all that we continue to work together, please let us know. We're always here to work with you. Thank you very much. Namaste. Namaste, Dr. Patel. God bless. Thank Bye -bye. you. Bye -bye.